the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. So everybody, welcome to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. We are brought to you by Tidewater Marine, a global service provider to the offshore service sector. Today, we are at the Ocean Corporation in Houston, Texas, and currently I'm sitting with Steve McGowan. Steve, welcome. Thank you for the time. Of course, of course. What can I tell you? What do you want to know? Well, first off, I'd like to know just a little bit about yourself and and what you do here at Ocean Corporation, You know what you cover. I know you're one of the instructors here, correct? Mm -hmm. One of the instructors here. I've been here about 15 years, okay? And I kind of got here because I retired and that was awful boring. So I come down here for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm 68 years old. And most people my age, I found out, were, yeah, pretty boring. So I come down here to hang around with a bunch of young people because it's exciting. But I also enjoy the hell out of sharing what I know experience-wise and telling people, you know, this is a pretty good job. It's a good job for guys. It's a great job for girls. You know, you get paid for how much you know and how much you do and so on. And it's the best job in the world that nobody knows about. Yeah, no, I can tell you're you're very enthusiastic about oh, like, what you do. Yeah, well, they say you do what you do what you like. You don't work a day in your life. Yeah, I love what I do. That's awesome. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I don't get to meet a whole lot of people that <laughs> that are in that boat. So kudos to you on that one. What classes do you teach, or, or what's your main focus well, here? Okay, at school? everything everything changes a little bit. I can teach. I graduated from this school back in 86. It was quite a bit different back then. Back then, it was kind of like the training department of Oceaneering International. It really, not really what it is, what today here, we've expanded a whole bunch. What I teach here is teach radiography. I teach people, you know, a little bit about how to be safe, teach people how to do a little x-ray work and so on. I also teach ultrasonics. I can teach mag particle, penetrant testing, eddy current testing, really not a whole, if it goes on at this school, I can fill in and do it. But we have other people here too, you know, so. Yeah. Okay. So you, you move through those real quick. Let's bring it back to some of the people might not, okay. might not understand. So we're talking about NDT. NDT, non-destructive testing. Okay. Radiography is x-ray and parts instead of people. Okay. okay, radiology is people. Everybody knows what that is, okay? Ultrasonics, we're still not looking at people here, but it's the same sort of thing as your wife is pregnant, you want to do an ultrasonic scan of the baby, something like that. We do the same thing, except we're looking at welds or castings, forging, stuff like that. Liquid penetrant testing, magnetic particle testing, everything we do is designed to inspect something that's manufactured, something that's welded or forged or machined is, is being built. And it's kind of a quality control type thing. Different industries, are our focus obviously is mostly oil and gas, but we have a lot of people, we have guys that went to work for SpaceX after they left here. Guys that go to work in steel mills, some people go to work in... You know, any th car industry, anything that's built, manufactured, wind turbines, we have people doing stuff like that all over. That's awesome. I know the focus here of 
probably leans towards the oil and gas yeah, sector. Yeah, because that's where we are. We're in Houston. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. You, you sound certainly know what you're talking about. How did you get here? I, I think you mentioned you got quite a few mm-hmm. stories. You got a lot of time in the industry. Tell us a little bit about that. I started out in 1977. Okay, you do the little college thing. 1977, I started out working on large industrial engines. I mean, like pistons, like 55-gallon drum size oh, wow. engines. Yeah. And I, I was doing that about seven or eight years as power plants is what it was. Not all power plants are nuclear by any stretch. A lot of them run on gas. Okay. And then I got I got to thinking about this, you know. Maybe I can do something a little more permanent or, if possible, a little bit more exciting. And Ocean Core is down here. And I looked at it and I go, you know, these guys can kind of move me a little further down the road. We do a little non-destructive training here back then, right? And the opportunities in Houston, because of everybody else that's here, I thought were just pretty good. So that's what I started out doing here. Along the line, I kind of got sidetracked a little bit and I ended up in the steel mill. Okay. Which I'm getting, okay, not many ships floating around through a steel mill, <laughs> are there? But I learned more in two years at that mill talking to the older guys than I had in the previous four years hanging around at the university. It was just that good. I thought, well, this is all right. But what I did there was, was really where I got started at this little wider view, you know. I started out, how is steel made? Yeah, I was doing samples. Yeah, the stuff's cooking, right? And mm-hmm. you're taking samples of this stuff, which sounds crazy today. Got onto the flat roll products, got into tubular products, things like that. A couple of years later, it's a, in fact, my dad asked me, he says, how do you like working there? And I said, man, they're going to have to close the doors to get me out of here. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Well, that's what they did. So <laughs> they went on strike. And I asked these guys, I said, yeah, how long are you guys going to be on strike? Well, the last time was six months. I said, hell, I can't, I can't, no, six months. Okay, so I have some friends down in Houston yet from Ocean Corporation here. So I come down here and I ended up working for a little bitty company called Chicago Bridge and Iron. Yeah, not so little. Not so little. Not so little. Okay, so I went to work locally here for one of their subsidiaries, one of their offices here in town. I thought, well, this is absolutely great. Okay, now I'm not running around crazy like they added a lot of stuff to my training. And that's where I got the most of my training carried on to today. More ultrasonic training, magnetic particle training, some radiographic training, eddy current training, flux leakage training. Thanks to them, one day I went and they said, we're going to teach you. Some of you guys, there's about six of us on, we're going to, and we build a lot of above ground storage tanks. Well, we have a new code we're going to inspect them by. It was API 653. I believe that I was in probably the first class for that that existed, which is, I kind of dates me. Kind of dates you there. (laughs) I won't ask. I won't ask. (laughs) Long back there. Yeah, a lot like that. So same thing. I was with those guys about 19, 20 years, you know. In that time, they farmed me out to some smaller companies for overseas work, smaller companies like Halliburton. Yeah, another tiny company. Yeah, a little bit little place out of Ponca <laughs> City, Oklahoma here. So my first job with them was they sent me to Algeria. Oh, wow. Yeah, we started in the desert on the south and moved up to the coast. Built an LPG plant there. That took a year, year and a half and so on. The there. pressure vessels. Yeah, and- yeah. And my, my job there not only was to inspect them, but I had to train the local people. Okay, this is the equipment you need to buy. By this time, I'm capable of doing that, you know. Right. Just, you know, get those guys up to speed and so on. About a year after that, 
they sent me to another place. And uh, he said, well, this place caught on fire and it is a methanol plant. I said, okay, no problem there. We can go down there. We'll, we're going to rebuild it anyway. Okay, no problem. Where is it? And they said, Cape Horn. I said, isn't that like between Antarctica and South Ooh. America? Well, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. We could, but when are we going down there? And they said, well, we'll, you know, we'll be down there summer months, May, June, July, and so on, about six months to a year like that. And I said, okay. And then it occurred to me, that's winter down there, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. it's it literally what it was. So yeah, that was quite an experience down there too. The winter. Okay, yeah. Antarctica. Big place. Area 13. No photos allowed. Yeah, right. Okay. Not the friendliest place in the world, but pretty good. Pretty good experience here. And I asked him one time, I said, look, don't we have offices in like London and Paris? And they said, oh yeah. And I said, well, why come you always send me to these? Uh, they said, well, it's real easy. You never bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and you're good at what you do. So, yeah, okay. That's yeah. a common theme for, I think, I think anybody in oil and gas understands that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah we I all think, travel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, just, that's just the way it is, you know. And pretty soon there, I moved, we train those guys too. This is the equipment you need. This is how you use it and mm -hmm. so on. So, and that's kind of why the training here at this school appealed to me because I really enjoyed showing guys, this is what you need to do. This is how you look at it, you know. It just, it just seemed to work out pretty good. You know, and about that time, I'm back here and, well, I got a chance to run a uh, immersion tank. That's immersion ultrasonics, and we were going to look at jet engines. Okay. Okay. I said, well, that's great because now I'm going to be in Houston. I'm going anywhere now. I'm old enough. I don't, I don't have to go. I can stay here. My wife's delighted for that. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're looking at jet engine parts. Okay. So in the States, you know, I got General Electric. I got Pratt & Whitney. And the guy that kind of did the maintenance on them was from Israel. And I said, you know, Martin, don't you travel around over there? He says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what do you know about France? And he goes, well, we got, yeah, there's Airbus, right? He says, so two, two people make engines for them. One company is named Fornic and the other one, the Snecma. And I said, really? He says, yeah, do you want to do business from them? I said, okay. So they're starting to ship parts over here too. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is great. I'm flying over to Paris here about once a month. And they're flying over here the other month, you know. And then this thing called 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And about six months later, July next year, the guy from GE came by and he says, well, he says, I've, uh, well, we're going to cut off business for a while. And I said, why is that? And he says, nobody flies. Right. He says, we got millions of dollars worth of parts that we have no idea what we're going to use. And I thought, okay, maybe this is when I retire. So, nope. yeah, no, it didn't work. A couple of months later, I can only mow the lawn so much. I painted the <laughs> house three or four times. And then somebody I know at this company, an old friend of mine called up and says, what are you doing? And I said, not much of anything. <laughs> and he says, well, how would you like to come down here for just a couple or three months? And he says, you can, you can probably teach radiography or ultrasonics or something, can't you? I said, well, I'm sure I can. I mean, I've been doing this for a while. Sure. He says, why don't you come down here for just a little bit? And pretty soon three weeks was three months and three years. And I've kind of been here ever since. I've been here about 15 years now. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. 15 years anywhere. Is yeah. Quite an well, you know, you know, that's what people say, but you know, it doesn't seem like that. Because you're just, having fun, right? Yeah, I do. And every once in a while, I have, uh, you know, people come in from other countries here, too. So that's that's always interesting. I, and it kind of reflects, too, because I tell you what, working working overseas, the, some of the fun things. The girl that cuts my hair is Russian. I, I say girl, she's 50 years old, right? 
I know her because I ran into her sister in Siberia. Oh, wow. Little things like that, yeah. right? So, uh, so your job is taking you, truly taking you yeah. around the world. Yeah. That yeah. is really cool. It's interesting. Like I knew, I knew Algeria. We we're building the LEG plant. We were coming up natural gas pipes through the Sahara there, and I don't speak any, you know, Farsi. I don't speak Persian, anything like that. And I thought, well, this used to be French Algeria. Well, my French is not that great. So, you know, one time I've just we're out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, God, I wish you guys spoke Spanish. And their ears perked up. I found out, yeah, they spoke more Spanish than French. Wow. Where the hell did, how did this happen? <laughs> Crusades. Oh, okay. The Moors used to come down and cut across North Africa where the British and French are going across coming down through Italy. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. South America, Chile. Yeah, they spoke Spanish there too. When I'm working other places, you pick up other languages. Yeah. No, that's, that's an awesome story. It's, it shows what you can do with a job in the industry, right? There's, uh, I tell people or I tell students, look, this, this job, you can do anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. And the only person that's stopping you is the person you see in the mirror every morning. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I have never, I've never been without a job. I've never, but my problem has been sometimes on projects, we're in a place we can't quit. There's been a couple, three years here and there, no vacation because you just don't stop, you know? So there's always a shortage. There's always something new to learn. I still learn stuff today. Well, that was going to be my next question was, what's the general demand for people in that industry in the non-destructive testing? Incredible. Incredible. When I first started out and look at this, it was, there weren't many of us around. They said, oh, we got 40 or 50% shortage of the people we need. Well, we're still there. And part of the reason is, yeah, some of the guys retire. But the other reason is the amount of stuff that you need to inspect has grown exponentially. I mean, it's just like everything, if it's manufactured, if it's screwed, welded, nailed, or glued together, somebody's going to look at it, you know? So that's what I tell people. You'll find something you like to do. And it's not a job that's, it's not a guy job. It's a guy and a girl job. You know, everybody has, girls are actually better at it than guys are for a whole bunch of reasons. More (laughs) detail-oriented. Yeah, they're Mm detail-oriented. The other reason you wouldn't think of, I can usually read their handwriting. This you, you spend a lot of time writing reports. I can remember writing them all by hand. Today you're making field notes by hand, but you still type it up on a laptop or right. something to file it, right? Mm-hmm. Women are girls are, are are detail oriented. Guys see the big picture. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not so good. <laughs> but yeah, I said start start at this now. You can you do. I'm I'm a big fan of trade schools, and I'll tell you why. Partly that, yeah, everybody talks about, oh, my college debt's enormous. Yeah, I understand that. And if you want to go to college, I mean, do it. I mean, the education's education if that's what you want. But if you just want a job and a trade, if you want something that's different, definitely challenging, definitely got new stuff every year, new equipment. You can't believe comparison of what we – the tools we have now – Versus what I had back in the seventies. There's no comparison. Yeah, and and NDT is only one part of what you guys one, teach here at the school, right? One little part, because I also had a short experience over out in the water. Right, you and know? that the, the underwater yes. diving—that's the other just, part of the school. It's right? the other half of the school. So one part of this you ought to be happy with. You ought to be happy with all, on land part. You ought to be happy with the on the water part. And we have girls that do both. We have women in the more in the diving classes. We have, you know, it's it really is. There's, I think the only requirement is is uh, you need to be 18 and reasonably willing to give it a try. Because I tell people, you got a dream, you want to do something, do it, That's and awesome. I'll help you get there. Honestly, I tell everybody this: 
You show up on time and I will drag you across the finish line if that's what it takes. That's all you got to do. Just be here. That's great. I, I really appreciate it. Your time, your stories are very encouraging for anybody that might be interested to get into the field. We're going to talk to Richard Richard yeah. next, and he's going to give us a little bit of information about the diving portion of yeah. the school, correct? Yep. And so if you're listening, you want to know more, you want to talk to me, I'm here every day. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Just come in and ask. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. Anytime. So to carry on the discussion here at the Ocean Corporation, we've got Richard Johnston here to tell us a little bit about the other half of the school and the diving portion of it. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you for sitting down with me. All right. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been at the Ocean Corporation for about three years now. I actually graduated from here back in 1990. I'm one of the few third generation commercial divers. So my grandpa was a retired Navy diver, got into commercial diving back into the 60s. My dad started in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, big boom, that kind of thing. So I kind of literally born into it in Morgan City, Louisiana, of all places. So that's how I kind of got into the oil and gas or more specific, the commercial diving industry. That's great. So so you've been, you said third generation. Correct. That is uh, quite a legacy, which is great. You've probably seen the goods and the bads. Uh, right. I always used to joke with my grandpa and my dad and told him, if you guys had been doctors, lawyers, engineers, I would have had it made. But <laughs> divers is kind of a curse kind of thing. So From Louisiana, what brought you out here to Houston? I've just been living in Texas for about 20 years. Okay. Like I said, years ago, I was in a diving accident, cut my career kind of short. And so I ended up, you know, the way life takes you different places, ended up in Texas, worked in the oil and gas engineering manufacturing fields, doing a lot of marketing for primarily engineering manufacturing, commercial diving companies, that kind of thing. Always stayed in touch with the folks here at the dive school. Always, you know, diving's my passion, been around it and ended up doing some marketing. And so I've kind of filled two slots, marketing and work as an instructor as well. Yeah, we heard from Steve already about how this career has taken him around the world and he's seen everywhere. I think just the 10 minutes we talked to him, he listed off most of the continents in the in the world. So I'm not surprised you've traveled a bit as well. Well, for my military, I traveled quite a bit, but for the commercial diving, pretty much out of the Gulf. So most of your commercial diving is done out of South Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico, you know, supporting the oil and gas industry. You've got other diving, you know, inland diving in dams, rivers, water treatment facilities, that kind of thing. But the majority of your divers and your work, especially your deeper work, is going to be in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. what What's the first step to getting into the diving industry? Pretty much always when I'm speaking to people, I give them the good and the bad. So I start off with the bad is, well, you're going to spend six to nine months out of the year offshore. Not all at once. You might go out for two weeks, come in for a day you know, go out for a month, come in for two weeks, that kind of thing. So if you've got a family relationship, it can be stressful, you know, being gone, you miss, you know, anniversaries, birthdays, holidays, baby's first steps, that kind of thing. For people in South Louisiana, a lot of them, it's the norm, you know, their husbands or wives or boat captains, riggers, engineers, operators, that kind of stuff, who it's just a way of life. For anyone who's not from South Louisiana or Houston, you know, it's kind of really crazy to think you just go offshore for maybe a month at a time. Yeah. I kind of made the parallel before we, we started on the microphone where, you know, I'm familiar with the trucking industry where a driver would be over the road for several weeks, several months at a time. They have that same, a similar 
pull away from the home life. Right. And for diving, you might get a two-week job and expect to be out two weeks. But while you're out there, the salesmen do their thing and you pick up another two-week or a month or another two days or whatever job. And so you might end up picking up more work mm-hmm. and divers don't turn down work. When you have work, you stay busy, you get everything you can. Okay. So that's kind of the negative part, which I, I can understand right. that that's a very tough lifestyle. What are some of the good parts? Well, it's unique lifestyle. You know, it's not a boring, some parts of it can be, but for me, I liked it. It was everything offshore. The word I use is ginormous, just huge, you know, crazy big stuff made out of steel and you know, to be a part of putting these things in the water, connecting pipelines to them, taking them out whenever they're stopped producing, or, you know, if a hurricane comes through, knocks these things over, having to go through, tear stuff up with a torch and pull it all up using huge cranes that can pick up the world. You know, it's, it's a pretty interesting job. Yeah, it's a fun industry. I know nothing about it, right? As anybody that's listened to the show or kind of knows where I came in, I am on a learning curve myself for the offshore sector. So I'm learning right. just like everybody else. And right. I found you guys just looking for underwater welding, but welding is really a small portion of what a diver would do. Right? right. Well, a lot of people I speak with, especially when I go to high schools and talk to students or even pretty much anyone not familiar with the oil and gas industry, they know what an underwater welder is because it's self-explanatory. It's someone welds underwater. Right. The real world is you're a commercial diver, which means you might do welding, underwater burning or cutting, you know, jetting, jetting down pipe, hand jetting, inspection work, NDT work underwater, lots of nuts and bolts type stuff. And so the easiest way to sum it up is if you're a welder, you get in your truck, you drive to the work site, you work and you get in your truck and drive home. If you're a diver, you put on your hat, you get to the work site, do what you need to do and you come up. So pretty much your diving hat is your transportation to get you to and from the work site. Okay. Yeah. And I got a quick tour of your facility here, which mm-hmm. is very impressive. All the tanks and pools outside. So it looks like you guys cover a lot of material here for anybody coming through the school. Right. We start off with the basics and work everyone up through, you know, everything from rigging, which is one of the key, most important classes, in my opinion, that we have to have how to move stuff underwater. That's key. You know, picking up whatever you're installing, taking out, you have to know your rigging. A lot of people think, you know, they're under the impression they just come here, put on a hat and they get in the water and play around. Then they learn that there's a lot of physics that goes into a diving medicine treatment, that kind of thing. So you have to understand the physiology before you get in the water into, you know, a whole different work environment. Yeah, it's a different world. I know very little about the risks associated with diving. I think I've heard the the term the bends and decompression syndrome and some of that kind of stuff. So you've got to go through a lot of that before. Right. And, you know, we, you know, it's talking about risk. I don't use the word danger or dangerous, but there are risks just like any job. I always joke with people I'm talking to and say, you know, it's more dangerous driving in Houston traffic than it is being a diver. So the, the risk are, you know, more, not so much you're going to drown or bends, you know, the safety is really through the roof compared to what it used to be. You know, I saw pictures of my dad back in the seventies, standing on a deck wearing flip-flops and a bathing suit and sunglasses, you know, now steel toe boots and, you know, hard hat, safety glasses, that kind of thing. Yeah. The, the world has, has progressed a little ways. We've, we've learned a few things. So it's, to me, it's a relatively safe job. 
I always joke and say, you know, divers, it's not scuba diving. A lot of people hear diver, they think scuba diving. It's not. You're a, you know, underwater construction worker. You've got your hose that comes down to supply air to your hat. You've got backup compressors, high pressure air, an emergency air tank on your back. You have constant communications with people topside. You got a video camera on your hat lights so you can see if you're diving at night. That way the people topside can see what you can see. So is there any, do you have people that come from like the recreational diving world that want to transfer that into a career? Or do you see maybe people that get into the career start to get into recreational diving? Is there any Typically, you're, we'll get a lot, maybe about a third of the people are scuba divers who come here and they got up, you know, they like being in the water. They like being around the water kind of thing. Rarely do you have commercial divers go scuba diving because <laughs> when they're working, they're underwater. Right. They don't want to be around water. So divers typically, you know, they like sailboats and they, they like the beach or the mountains, yeah. but they really don't want to go scuba diving when they're not working because that's what they do for a living. So the life of a diver, you would wait for a job and then you're going to get called off to some construction site offshore called shipped out there either by boat or helicopter? Well, or? typically you're, the way it'll work is a job will come up and they'll say, you know, we leave on Tuesday, the boat leaves at midnight. That means you have all your gear, you get on the boat, you're not one minute late or you're going to miss the boat and they don't stop for anyone. So you get on the work boat or you're going to get on a barge. If you have an existing barge or a boat on location, you might take a crew boat and ride out to, re, you know, relieve whoever's out there helicopters. I've been on some jobs where, you know, fairly long ways out and they'll fly you out by helicopter, which a three hour or two hour helicopter ride is much better than a 12 hour boat ride. Right. So for me, I would always like taking helicopter versus riding a boat, you know, to and from. But as soon as you get on the boat or barge, you know, your crews are setting up the dive station. They're ready to go. And the main thing is when you get on location and they're anchored, they want you to start working. So dive crews or dive boats or vessels cost a lot of money. So even a small inspection dive boat, it could cost twenty to $30,000 a day versus a large construction barge, you know, anywhere from three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to $500,000 a day. And so the diving is all about producing. When you get in the water, you have to produce. You're costing a lot of money, not just in the expense, but you're holding up a project. You're not pumping oil or gas you're costing the oil and gas company a lot of money. So you're there to put stuff together as quickly, as safely as possible. On average, for each diver in the water, how much support staff would be topside? Or Well, typically you're going to have your diver, you're going to have a tender or diver tender, which is pretty much an apprentice diver who's not at the diver level yet. They're the good ones that are going to be holding your hose, sending down tools. You'll probably have another couple of guys that are there or females, depending sending down tools, helping with the equipment. You're going to have a supervisor who may or may not be the one running the radio or the rack, as they call it, which controls your air, your gas, whatever you're breathing. That's going to be your surface supplied stuff. And then you're going to have a standby diver. He'll have a tender to monitor his hose. So in the event you get in trouble, you know, they can send a standby diver to go down and check you out, see what's wrong, help you out, that kind of thing. Your deeper diving stuff, your saturation diving, 300 to 1,000 feet, is a really big, complex system. You know, you've got living habitats. You've got a diving bell going in the water. You've got a winch system for the umbilical, for the cable that's going to be holding the bell. You've got hydraulic system, mixed gas systems, communication systems. 
And then you have the whole support staff that's on the vessel. So you've got your riggers, you know, welders, you have all that support that's going to be basically helping prepare everything or organize everything to put it down in for the diver to install. So it's a pretty big operation, even for a small vessel for a diver to just do, we call it flyby, a simple inspection job. And it's still a, you know, pretty good, several people to do things. Yeah, no, that's kind of what I envision. I mean, most of the, most of the work would look like it's up top, except for that one diver or two divers down there. What's the average depth? I think you've, you've said a couple different numbers. Uh, most of the work in the Gulf of Mexico is going to be less than 500 feet. That's pretty much uh, about the standard. Every now and then, there was a company that was here recruiting a couple of months ago, and I think they had their divers at about 800 feet. So, you know, the deeper stuff. In order to be a, a saturation diver, you deeper stuff. Typically, you're going to have a, at least five years experience. You're going to have some deeper dives, and you're going to have some more complex dives under your belt. They're not just going to kerplunk you in the water and give you something that's, you know, too complex or set you up for failure kind of thing. That's all awesome information. I think it's it's a role in the offshore sector that not many people would think about. You know? Right. And we've actually been having an increase in females who are doing it. You know, a lot of folks, they'll think, you know, that's just a guy thing. And so we actually have one in our one of our classes and she's all of, you know, 100 pounds and five foot two but she's probably in the top three in her class. I mean, she can do everything the guys can do. And what I tell them is everything is so big offshore, you're not going to pick it up anyway. But yeah. if you use your brain and you know how to use the tools, crane, come alongs, tuggers, and all that stuff to move it, you can move it simply by giving direction. They have to have a bit of strength and everything. You know, it's a manual labor job and it's easier if you're a bit physically fit, you know, to do it but you don't have to be a big muscle head gorilla or anything like that. What are some of the, the misconceptions or, you know, things that you get asked all the time about being a industrial driver? Right. So people, the first thing I always get asked, especially by the high school kids is what about sharks? And so what I tell <laughs> them is yes, there are sharks in the Gulf of Mexico. No, they don't mess with you. You know, you've got a hat, a hose and noise and cables and a tank on your back and you're working and you're not food. And so I always joke and say they eat scuba divers and surfers out in California. In my entire lifetime being around commercial diving, I've never heard of a commercial diver being attacked by a shark unless it's in a bar and some guy's <laughs> trying to impress some lady by, you know, he had a wrench in one hand, was fighting a shark off, is biting his leg kind of thing. The other thing for your commercial divers, typically it's only going to be one diver in the water at a time. You know, when you start getting more than one diver, you've just doubled your support and everything else. So that's where it goes back to producing. If you're good, you can produce. You're going to stay busy. You have the opportunity to have a really good living and career and everything. You know, if you're unorganized and you don't think things through, you know, you're probably not going to last. How about automation and, and robotics and some of those tools in the, the diving industry. Right. ROVs, uh, remote operated vehicles are basically what I tell everyone. It's like a drone that goes underwater. Right. These things have been around for a long time. They are really, really neat pieces of machinery. You know, they can go down thousands of feet. They've got robotic arms so they can, you know, put stuff together, take stuff apart, open valves, close valves, that kind of thing. But they use those in your deeper stuff typically in Everything that they're installing or they're going to be working on is typically engineered to be used by an ROV. 
all of your existing stuff out there is not, I call it ROB friendly. And there's a couple of things that and a diver has an advantage. One, if it's murky water and your visibility is limited, which that's a lot of golf diving, an ROB is pretty useless because you can't see. Now they've got some that have some sonar and everything else, so you can get some stuff done and you don't have a sense of touch. So if you're rigging, and again, if it's a, a new project that's designed to be used with ROBs, easier. If it's something that, you know, has been in the water for 20 years and it's not ROB friendly, you know, if you don't have your, if you don't have visibility and your sense of touch makes things really difficult for an ROB to work. Okay. Yeah, I can understand that. That that sounds, sounds real good. Is there anything else that you'd want to touch on about the Ocean Corporation or the diving industry as a whole? Well, the Ocean Corporation has been around since the 60s. We've had, you know, more than 15,000 people go through our program. We have job placement. So, you know, we don't just, uh, it's not like college. You get your business degree and they kick out and say, okay, get on one of the websites and post your resume and try to get a job. Our job placement is really good, you know, high 80s. So pretty much the people who graduate here that don't get a job or people that don't want to go to work. So we've got great placement rates. You know, there's several choices as far as schools go. This one is really in touch with the folks in the Gulf of Mexico. As far as companies go, we have a lot of alumni that have graduated from here that are ops managers, even owners of diving companies. You know, they come in, they like to recruit and everything, you know, financial aid, just like a regular college or FAFSA, your government funding. So you can come through apply for your financial aid, see what you qualified, you know, to help out cover some of the expenses, that kind of thing. Well, it's a very interesting topic. I learned a lot myself. Hopefully everybody listening learned a lot as well. I really appreciate the time and and all the information that you and Steve shared with us. We are here at the Ocean Corporation in Houston, Texas. They've got a wonderful facility with everything needed to go through the full training for industrial diving. You might hear some of that in the background as we've been on the mics with uh, class and other operations going on here at the school. But again, Richard, thank you very much for your time. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. We have a couple of OGGN events on deck for the next month. OGGN's next Houston Happy Hour will be on October 29th at the Cannon from 4 to 6. As always, a portion of the proceeds will go toward Redeem Ministries to fight human sex trafficking. At this happy hour, we'll be discussing the process of taking a startup from simply an idea to obtaining the first purchase orders. The panel discussion will include Saudi Aramco Ventures, Shell Ventures, NOV, SCF Ventures, Eternal Energy, and Well Diver. Our next Denver happy hour will be on November 6th. Come join us for food, drinks, and a live podcast that we will announce at a later date. A portion of this event's proceeds will go to local charities Safe House Denver and Oil Field Helping Hands. Okay, now to the events on deck. The Tamora Lestat Oil and Gas Summit 2019 will be on October 3rd through 4th in Dilly, Tamora Lestat. The SMRP third quarter West Houston chapter meeting is on October 3rd at 1130 in Houston. This event will cover the topic, Are Your PMs Preventing or Causing Failures? IPAA and TIPRO are hosting their Leaders in Industry Luncheon on October 9th in Houston. On October 14th, the Canon will be having a disruptive energy workshop. The API Golf Tournament will be held on October 14th, 2019 at Kingwood Country Club. And as of right now, there are some spots still open, so be sure to check their website and register your team. 
The 2019 Operations and Process Technology Summit will be on October 14th through 16th in San Antonio. The summit will cover maximizing your molecular advantage, practical solutions for today, forethought for tomorrow. On October 24th, OGGN's very own Mark LaCour will be speaking at Tech to Market in Shreveport, Louisiana. The Balkans Petroleum Conference will be held on October 24th through 25th in Budva, Montenegro. The summit is the official event for the Balkans oil and gas industries. Lastly, the George H. Bush Conference this year will be on October 28th through 29th in Houston. Honoring President George H.W. Bush, the Bush-China Conference brings together Americans and Chinese to discuss critical bilateral, regional, and global issues and to generate innovative recommendations for advancing the relationship. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.